Hello and welcome back to Murderland Chicago. My name is Jonathan Sanchez-Leos and I'm here with Meredith Halsey. And this is part two of our series on Patty Colombo and Frank DeLuca, who killed Patty's family in suburban Chicago in 1976. We covered Patty's childhood and early adolescence in episode one. And I'm going to say, Meredith, that we know Patty better than Patty knows Patty at this point, okay? <laughs> because I was listening to our episode last week, and damn, like, we have psychologically mapped the teenage psyche, okay, of a adolescent girl in the late 1970s very, very well, I might add. <laughs> but at this point in the story, Patty Colombo is a confused teenage girl who, after years of sexual abuse by a Colombo family friend, which we're going to talk about in just a second, gets mixed up with a sexual sadist by the name of Frank DeLuca, who was also the manager of a Walgreens. DeLuca was able to exploit Patty's teenage angst and history of sexual abuse to make her 100% pliable in his psychotic hands. Last week, we had a lot to cover, but we need to add a really important assertion regarding the sexual abuse of Patty as a child that, note, has not been completely corroborated. And that is that the family friend who committed the alleged sexual abuse was reportedly her godfather. It is important to note that some sources dispute this, and we're actually getting this from her parole hearing that she had. A couple parole hearings from the from the from the, the transcript. Yeah, from the transcript, thank you. Yes, from the transcript of the of the actual parole hearing. But if true, I think this makes us even more insidious, but also sadly more probable. Question mark. Meredith, have you ever had a Godfather? Yes. Uh, I was raised Catholic, but in my case, this was more of a formality. My godparents were actually an aunt and an uncle. And aside from a gift at my first communion, they never spoke to me about religion. So what about you? I was raised Catholic too. And sure, the, the official quote unquote position of a godfather is to guide you spiritually. But in my case, and the case I know for a lot of other ethnic Catholics, is that being a godfather actually means, one, that you're a close friend of either the mother or the father, right? Two, you're usually told growing up that if your parents die, you're going to go live with them, which I don't know if that was the case for you, but yeah. that was very much the case for me. It was. And it, again, is because it was my aunt and uncle. <laughs> yeah. And that idea, that immediacy, like, like I, I remember looking at my my godparents, and you know, I, I also did not like my godparents personally, but, <laughs> but being really worried, like, oh shit, like if my if my family dies, I'm gonna go live with these motherfuckers, right? Mm -hmm. But number three, you're probably from the same type of Catholicism. Meaning you're probably from the same ethnicity. You're from the same ethnic enclave. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sad on behalf of the Catholic Church, you know, because fuck the motherfuckers, right? But I am sad because the fact that this could have been her godfather implies, just from the cultural context that I think you and I are both aware of, mm -hmm. that being the godfather, he had a lot of access to her. Yeah, it was a very close relationship. Yeah, and I, that that to me is what makes it sad. Not because oh he disrespected the position of Godfather, you know what? Like whatever. Like I think all of us know, ninety five percent of us out there, like you know, we never really had any interaction with our Godfathers after the baptism itself, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. But because he might have had that position, it means that he would have been able to be with Patty all the time, and that to me is what makes it more probable because. Mm -hmm. What other position in the family or outside of the family would have been allowed to have that much access to a young child? Right. Such a trusted relationship. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And they were also part of what we like to call in Chicago, the old neighborhood. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about the old neighborhood, Jonathan? This is a point that you brought up in our last conversation that I think is really, really important, which is that even though we are removed from the city and we are in the suburbs, we are talking about 
a, a cast of characters that's all from a very specific ethnic enclave in Chicago. And that enclave would have been considered by these new suburbanites as the, quote, old neighborhood, unquote. And we have to add old neighborhood to our list of aphorisms used by white people in Chicago to say, hey, we're racist, especially when it comes to real estate. Because what they're saying is basically like they are pioneers into like a brave new world because this is basically a syllogism, right, of the concept of the old world, meaning Europe. So you are leaving the old world of Europe for the United States. You move to, you know, the Tri-Taylor area, create an Italian enclave there, which is also a white area. And now you are leaving that area to make another home in the suburbs. It's all bullshit, okay? <laughs> like, it's, just, it's just coding racism, okay? <laughs> and so the fact that all these people were from the same neighborhood just means one thing and that is that they all believed in the primacy of being amongst your ethnic group and you know another aphorism i read a lot meredith when i was doing this research was safe haven and as a differentiated description from chicago right it's talking about the suburbs as being a safe haven from the city which makes me think of the Hegelian dialectic. And Meredith, you are our resident philosophy expert, which if you haven't heard this conversation before, it's because Meredith actually has her degree in philosophy, uh, meaning she had to suffer through so many class discussions with complete assholes. But it's also great because she's able to discuss and explain to us philosophical concepts that are difficult. So Meredith, can you talk to us a little bit about what the Hegelian dialectic is and why it's important when talking about this distinction between Chicago and the suburbs? Well, I'm not sure what level of expertise that a 19-year-old bachelor's degree really confers on me, but I can definitely try to explain. Hey, a lot of people out there are doing a lot more with a lot less, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I think, I think it's great, okay? So let's just start with what dialectics is. That mm-hmm. is something like Plato writing a conversation between Socrates and somebody else. It's basically just a way to explain philosophical ideas to a lay person, and it gives lots of examples and thought experiments. Okay? The Hegelian dialectic is Hegel's version. Instead of writing a conversation between people, Hegel pits two ideas against each other, and the ideas argue it out. So, for example, the personification of one definition of consciousness will argue with a different definition of consciousness. <laughs> You're taking me back to UFC. You're taking me back to the core. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, <laughs> it's not the easiest concept to really understand. So I'm going a little slow. The main point here is that Hegel thought this adversarial way of thinking about concepts would help people to better understand what each side truly means. Yeah. So in my example, you've got two definitions of the concept of consciousness. And to get to really understand what each definition really, truly means and all the implications, he's like, got two sock puppets. And like this definition is saying this thing. And the other definition is the responding sock puppet. Hegel was really just trying to show what he thought was the best way to rigorously analyze ideas. He was trying to show Mm -hmm. people how to think. And I think that's perfect for what we're talking about here, because what Hegel is saying, like you said, is he's saying that you have to have these two adversarial concepts to kind of define, to help define each other. And here, there, there is a real fence. It's a white picket one, right? Dividing the suburbs and Chicago because they're helping to define each other. As Chicago is becoming more and more synonymous with crime, the suburbs are being more and more synonymous with safety. As the city becomes more and more BIPOC or more person of color, the suburbs become more and more white. They're kind of engaged in this mutual defining that is really important when we discuss this case. What's so shocking about the Patty Colombo and Frank DeLuca case is that it forces the suburbs to renegotiate their own definition of themselves. 
And we ended the, the conversation last time with a quote from the mayor of Elk Grove Village saying that, you know, I remember when this case happened because it was when Elk Grove Village lost its innocence, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And what what he actually means to say is that it's not that they lost its innocence, right? It's not your innocence. It's your feigned innocence in light of a social reality, right? You are losing this construct that you have negotiated as a differential or something that makes you different from the city. And now you're forced to reckon with the reality, which is that you were never innocent to begin with. But it it opens up this vacuum because everyone's like, what am I then? What are the suburbs if they're not safe? And I think that even when you listen to fucking news, you know, reports now from Chicago and they go out to a suburb and they're like, in this sleepy town of Deerfield, mm-hmm. gunshots are rarely ever heard, right? And then you you hear people, the people are like, I never thought this would happen when I bought this property. It was that exacerbation that they're feeling is because they need to reckon with this divide that they have artificially created in their brain. Yeah, just because you believe the suburbs are safe and innocent doesn't make them safe and innocent. So I can only imagine at that time what people within the city limits thought about this news story, because I'm sure there were a lot of people with a chip on their shoulder about this, just as there are people with that same chip on their shoulder now. Mm -hmm. And it must have seemed like the suburbs really got taken down a peg or two right yeah. like in the city you're like oh you think you're in such a safe area compared to the city like what about your teenage murders <laughs> right yeah and it's the same kind of story that we heard with brian dugan because he was primarily yep. out in the suburbs and it was the same old story of like that doesn't happen around here no that does happen around there that's why we had the story on this podcast because Brian Dugan wasn't kidnapping little girls out of their homes within the city. He was yeah. out there in the suburbs doing that. Yeah. So I think I definitely would have been one of those disgruntled Chicagoans to be like, hey, what about your teenage murderer? Because I definitely always felt that way about people in the suburbs who claimed that the suburbs were safer. Because to me, the suburbs were a dangerous place. And I think that that's a reality for a lot of people of color in general, because I always got stopped in the suburbs, right? Like if I was driving around, you know, my my sister, she, she did a lot of dance and her dance studio, she's going to kill me when she hears this because <laughs> she doesn't like me talking about it. But I used to have to drive her to her dance practice, right? And I got stopped, I think, three times taking her out there by cops for like bullshit reasons forced out of my car you know like got searched everything and i knew i think almost everyone in the united states knows right the reason why was because i was a non-white person in this area you know what i'm saying so i think when in popular culture when we talk about the suburbs as as a safe space it really is whitewashing it because it's only accepting a white version of the story And the DeLucas and all the other white families moving to the suburbs at that time, they're all thinking, oh, we're finally safe from all those quote-unquote bad people, right? When really the worst people in the fucking world are right around the corner. People like Frank DeLuca. And Meredith, I actually looked up the court records because, as you know, and as I think our, our listeners probably know too, Whenever you do any of this type of research, there are just so many different versions. And it's really hard to kind of, (laughs) it's really hard to separate the wheat from the chaff, right, when you're doing this type of research. But I think, generally speaking, we all kind of accept the idea that court records are somehow a little bit more credible. So I was like, let me look at these court records, right, to see what's the court's version of events, right? So according to their trial... In 1975, Frank DeLuca brings Patty to move into his house while his wife and kids are still living there, okay? And Patty's parents accept this kind of situation because supposedly it was because Patty wanted to be closer to work. And that when they finally found out that Patty and Frank are actually fucking... This whole entire time, while Patty's living in the house 
with Frank's wife and kids, they're fucking pissed because they thought, and Meredith, I'd love to hear your perspective on this, right? But for them, you know, it doesn't change the fact that she was living in a house, right? Right. It, it doesn't change, it, it, the, the fact that she was living there is 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 the constant, right? The the difference is what are people going to think now? And I think that what's so disingenuous about the DeLucas having an issue with this after finding out that they're fucking, right, is why the fuck did you have her, why did you let her go move there to begin with? You know what I'm saying? She's your teenage daughter. You didn't do your due diligence and, like, figure out, like, wait, my 17-year-old daughter wants to go live with a married man and his family? Did that somehow make them feel that he was a trustworthy man because he had a family? Like, does the fact that you have a wife and children automatically make you trustworthy? Like, I don't see the connection. Like, it, it doesn't make sense to me. It, it doesn't make sense to me either because I think, again, the issue here is appearances. For them, just the fact that he's married with kids is enough for them because they're not doing any more research. Yeah. I mean, they're wiki researching this shit, right? They're just like, <laughs> let me not go into the sources. Right. Let me not ask any fucking questions. Right. Because, like, if I had a child who was like, I want to go live with this family, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to be doing, you know, background searches, public record search. You know what I'm saying? Like, I want to know about this fucking family, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So I just, I call bullshit on the DeLuca anger when finding out that Patty was actually fucking Frank. Yeah. And that's what brings us right to where we left off at the end of the last episode. (laughs) So Patty's dad punched DeLuca in the face, knocked out a couple of teeth, and gave Patty and DeLuca a common enemy. Mm -hmm. DeLuca is reinforcing the toxic relationship by now leaving his wife and kids. And Mm -hmm. he and Patty get their own apartment together. Which is totally a power move on his part because he can always hold that over her head, right? Which is what men who cheat always fucking do. Mm -hmm. You know, like men don't leave their families for another woman, all right? They leave because it's in their self-fucking interest. But they always twist the verbiage to be like, well, I'm leaving them for you, right? No, like... No one's that fucking special. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're leaving them because you have decided that this is in your best self-interest. And that language is dangerous because it creates within the relationship a sense of indebtedness. Yes. Right? It, it creates a, but he left his family, so now I have to, you know, go insert despicable sexual act there. Because now you feel like you are forced to because you are paying back this you know, supposedly huge fucking debt, right, mm-hmm. of this man who basically is just doing, he's just following his dick, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, and he got caught. And he got caught! And so also court record reality here, all right, because I, I sadly went through this whole entire fucking court case, okay? Frank doesn't even divorce his wife. His wife divorces him. So the fact that he even spins this narrative to begin with is legally at least bullshit. But Patty doesn't know that. She is now more invested than ever in DeLuca, exactly for the reasons you just described. There's this huge debt. He is committed to her. She is committed to him. And the family, the Colombo family is horrified and they disown her. Mm-hmm. So this is just a, like a lovely, perfect cherry on top of a lifetime of neglect. And yes. when Patty is desperate and she's she just needs support more than ever, she needs a path away from her abuser. And mm-hmm. this is when her parents cut her off. Jonathan, oh. we spoke about this earlier and you mentioned that families used to disown their children a lot more than they do now. So can you yeah. elaborate on that? So I, as many people on this podcast know, I, I am a Mexicano. I, I am of Mexican descent. And I saw this so much, not only like within my own family, but in other families, you know, that I grew up with, where the idea of disowning a child, it was such a common thing to do. And the reason why is because at the end of the day, you boil it down to control. It's a way of you exerting control over this person by basically letting go. When you think about it psychologically, it's super fucking destructive because it creates a relationship of fear, 
right? Because <laughs> it's also an example for everyone else because you can point to that person and say, do you want to end up like that person? That person got disowned. And that keeps everyone else in fucking line because no one wants to be outside of the fort. I think in a lot of families that don't have access to a lot of social resources, either because of race or ethnicity or, you know, country of origin, whatever it might be, mm -hmm. okay, you realize you don't have to be an idiot to look outside in the world and be like, I'm not, I don't have a lot of support out there. Yeah. And so it really makes you like hunker down into that familial unit. Mm -hmm. Like when I talk to, you know, being gay, obviously, like I know a lot of, of gay guys who for them coming out, you know, was it was an extremely difficult thing. I actually was just talking with a friend of mine who is still not out. Oh, OK. Mm -hmm. And he is in his early 40s. OK. Wow. Yeah. He comes from a very conservative Filipino family. I always feel like I'm no one to judge anyone else's coming out process, mm -hmm. okay? You are the best kind of judge of your own interests. But my heart does go out to people in this situation because I think what they're, where they're acting from is a place of uh, the outside world is scary. Yeah. And the only way that I can keep my place in this, you know, in this area, which which feels secure, right, because it feels familiar, then to, I have to abide by these rules. Yeah. And so Patty getting disowned must have sent her on a fucking tailspin. Yeah. I think for, for anyone in that situation where you are disowned from a family, because basically after you're disowned, you're like a burr out in the world and you're just trying to cling on to anything you can to get some semblance of the security that you once had. Mm -hmm. So at this point, Patty thinks that she's solved some problems... Mm -hmm. Like the Lucas prior marriage and her parents' opposition <laughs> to her relationship. Yeah. But now she's got new problems. Yep. Okay. We talked about lack of support. We've talked about her naivete. But at that top of the list is money. Yep. And because of the scandal in the neighborhood, DeLuca is no longer a hotshot pharmacist with a good income. <laughs> he lost that job. It's gone. Yeah. It's Walgreens, yo. Like, they won't even give you birth control. <laughs> right, right. So he doesn't have access to all of his drugs and probably a bunch of his friends are piecing out. I mean, we mm -hmm. don't know, but I would imagine. Also, the, Patty has only ever worked at that lunch counter. Yeah. And she's not on her way to college. So she can't make a lot of money either. She just doesn't have experience or a lot of skills. So... The problem here is she believes that her parents have been saving a lot of money and <laughs> she thinks that she's got a pretty good inheritance coming her way because she oh, figures that if her parents die, their savings plus the payout from their life insurance would set her and DeLuca up for a comfortable life. Okay, mm. so she's wrong, but we, <laughs> we can understand maybe why she thought this. Because let's rewind the tapes real quick yeah. and remember mm -hmm. that what does Mr. Columbo do? Mr. Columbo, Patty's dad, is the manager of a auto parts store. <laughs> Keeping up a suburban <laughs> lifestyle on the yeah. single income with the two kids. They're keeping up appearances. I'd be shocked if they were saving anything. Right. They're probably massively in fucking debt. They yeah. could be. They could be. Yeah. So what does she do? She makes the obvious decision to hire a couple of hitmen on contingency. Okay. The important word here is contingency. Her plan is it to is. pay the hitmen with the insurance money when the payout comes. And we have to talk about how dumb this is yeah. because I think you honed in on the, the operative word here, which is that she doesn't even have money to pay them right okay this whole thing is predicated like what even if you were trying to hire a hitman yeah. all right you're not getting you know what i'm saying like top of the line hitman mm -hmm. interested in a contingency plan for their fucking payment you know right. what i'm saying you have to scrape at the bottom of the fucking barrel mm -hmm. to find someone who's going to do that for you but in patty's world in patty's mind this is completely possible <laughs> So I don't know what was going on in that mind of hers that made yeah. her think that she could find and hire a real hitman in the mid-70s. <laughs> but I do know that this level of stupidity is alive and well today. 
Mm-hmm. And anybody who can fire up a Google machine can find a bunch of news stories about people earnestly trying to hire a real hitman from rentahitman.com. So that's all one word. We're not sponsored. Check it out. Rentahitman.com. <laughs> All right. It's a joke site. It's an obvious joke site. That's why I'm saying go visit it. It's very funny. And for every person looking to purchase an illegal product or service, there's somebody out there who is willing to make some easy money by pretending to provide those illegal services or products. If you're trying to buy an illegal service or product, like, what are you going to do when you get scammed? Like, are you going to, like, report the scammer to the BBB? Like, like. Oh, I tried to like hire a hitman and they they took my money and didn't kill the person. Like, who are you going to? I think this is funny because in the law there is established case law because people have tried to take to court people who have reneged on illegal acts. Uh, those could have been like paying back for services for prostitution, <laughs> drugs, etc. There, there's a lot of cases out there, Amazing. right? Where people have attempted to do this, and so it's a basic tenet of contract law. Okay, that a contract is void if it is regarding an illegal act. So the law has already dealt with this question because just like you said, just like there are people dumb enough to go on to fucking rentahitman.com, there are people dumb enough to go to court to try to argue (laughs) that they they deserve money back for something illegal that they did. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. But at least for the court, people have already tried to do this and the court has already said, if it's an illegal act... Your contract, void, you can't collect. There's no breach of contract if it's for an illegal act. Incredible. I'm so happy <laughs> that there is established case law and so many cases. Okay. All right, but back to Patty. She did find some con men who happily pretended to be hitmen. They mm-hmm. were in it for the money if there was money to be had, but since she was trying to pay them on contingency, um, they decided to kind of wait and see right what could Mm -hmm. they get out of this young woman and they let her on for months in kind of a planning phase right so the quotation marks planning phase 19 year old patty who was not an innocent girl anymore was Mm -hmm. also blissfully unaware of how naive she truly was yeah okay so when the so-called hitman negotiated some advance payment in the form of sexual favors, she delivered. Yeah. Yeah. She didn't think there was anything wrong with this because her years with DeLuca made her oh. feel that this was a normal way to behave. That's so fucking sad. Yeah. You know, we've already said that, yes, we might be painting Patty in a sympathetic light here. And we're not doing this in order to deny her culpability. But... The fact that she had no other anchor to kind of help guide her in these troubled waters. Because for her, there was no anchor. Frank DeLuca tore that anchor out and she's just swimming in these fucking like shark infested waters. Which is exactly where he liked her being because he's getting off on it. Right? So not to, you know pull punches here but she's fucking these two dudes who are just basically like <laughs> yeah she really thinks we're gonna kill her parents you know yep. like i'm they're they're not they're not gonna do anything right you know what i'm saying right this to me adds to my sympathy for her but not my forgiveness yeah. okay <laughs> my sympathy because of how earnest she was in this because she actually gave the hitman a map of the colombo home and photos of how to help identify them because she was committed to getting her parents killed again this is not a saying that (laughs) patty to look sorry that patty colombo is not at fault for this patty colombo is definitely at fault for this right but like you said she has been conditioned to this point she didn't just fall out of you know this out of nowhere into this place by the time patty realizes that her quote-unquote hit is never going to happen deluca had formed a backup plan that he would do the killing again this is not in a vacuum okay when (laughs) patty's talking about killing her parents this plan is is being guided by frank deluca right although the exact details of who did what are murky what would happen next would rock the entire chicagoland area 
and forever stain the sanitized view of Chicago suburbs that was so carefully cultivated by real estate developers, other people interested in upping the prestige of those areas, and even directors like John Hughes, who infamously directed Pretty in Pink. On the evening of May 4th, 1976, Frank, Mary, and then 13-year-old Michael Colombo were each shot with a 32 caliber revolver and then stabbed and mutilated after their death. Later, DeLuca admitted to firing the gun, but Patty's exact actions were never described by either Patty or DeLuca. Frank, the father, took four bullets in the head. He was tortured and severely beaten. Mary, the mother, was shot between the eyes and her throat was slashed. Michael, the brother, was pulled from his bed, shot in the head, and was bludgeoned with a bowling trophy as well as being stabbed nearly 100 times on both sides of his body. Some reports say 94, others say 87, but regardless of the official count, it's heartbreaking. Patty and Frank then ransacked the home and took Mr. and Mrs. Colombo's vehicles and abandoned them in a high crime area of the city to create the idea that they had been victims of a home invasion by gang members. Meredith, this is a lot. Well, what was Patty and Frank's plan by leaving the cars in a quote-unquote high crime area good call out there so they were making a bet okay patty and deluca were betting that when that car was found in the city that the police would conclude that someone had gone out to the suburbs to murder and pillage an innocent family Mm -hmm. to be fair the ripper crew's actions do fit that narrative okay they lived in the city and attacked several suburban victims but The fact that Patty and DeLuca planned to take advantage of that narrative shows us how the suburbs perceived Chicago at that time. Uh These two killers were members of the white flight generation, and they were clearly enmeshed in the narrative that violent crime is a city thing, not a suburban thing. Yeah, and they're also complete fucking idiots because... Let's say this war- was a, you know, a case which I'm I'm not talking about like high crime area versus low crime area, but right. let's say this is just a a crime done for economic purposes. A crime done for economic purposes, you're not going to have this level of rage against the family members. The fact that all of them were beaten and mutilated even after their death. The young the 13-year-old brother, mm-hmm. okay? Stabbed 100 times. You know, like there, there is a thing in obviously, I know you know this, yeah. but in serial killer kind of rhetoric about quote unquote overkill, and this is textbook overkill. This is not something that you're like a hitman. <laughs> if those two dudes, Patty was fucking, were actually hitmen, right. that they would have actually done. They would have done the cleanest and most efficient way to kill someone. This is not that. So. Obviously, they were wrong on a number of different issues, okay? But the bodies are found three days after the killings. So Frank, Mary, and Michael Colombo all found in the house on May 7th. And Patty is immediately a suspect because to the outside world, they're still a whole family unit, okay? Because it's not like Mr. and Mrs. Colombo were out there saying like, oh, yeah, you know Patty? great girl she's actually she actually started fucking her boss at walgreens <laughs> shacked up with him for a little bit the, the marriage is broken up and now now they're, they have a really nice apartment out in god knows where right no one knows okay so to the outside world patty's supposed to be living with them so the fact that she's missing from the carnage sends up some major red flags okay And police ask her what she knows. Patty pulls out an old chestnut, but a good one. Because she says, (laughs) oh, my family? Yeah, it's so sad they were killed. Um, You know, I actually think they were probably killed by... The mob. (laughs) 
banking on good old anti-Italian sentiment here. <laughs> and she also is hoping that the similarity of her last name to the infamous Colombo family. I can't even say that that fucking last name. Colombo, Colombo. So they basically, the same. Of, it's they pronounce the same, yeah. but instead of an, a, a U in Patty's case, it's an O. The Colombos in on the East Coast, they're one of the five families of New York City. If you ever watch The Sopranos, you know exactly what we're talking about. But there's a big problem with this strategy. One, her name is not Colombo, it's Colombo. And two, this is Chicago. Here, we don't have families. We have the outfit. And Meredith, can you tell us, you know, for all of our our listeners who want to know more about organized crime in the city of Chicago, uh, what the outfit is? Yeah, it's just another name for the Chicago Mafia. Mm -hmm. And the most famous member is Al Capone which we've seen glamorized in tons of movies like The Untouchables. And mm-hmm. without going too much into the weeds, you can think of it like this. On the East Coast, the mob started out as sort of a shadow police force for the Italian immigrant community and developed into a full shadow economy. And that's kind of the whole idea behind the statement that murders by the mob are just business because it's the shadow economy. In Chicago, however, the mob was much weaker until Prohibition in the 1920s. And Prohibition created a huge black market for alcohol. Chicago's mob happily stepped in to serve this market, and they capitalized (laughs) on their new power and influence to cultivate close relationships with Chicago police and politicians. So when we get to the 1960s, the outfit is extremely influential. Like city aldermen or city council members for the non-Chicagoan listeners, aldermen were mob members, okay? And Patty, Mm -hmm. growing up around that time, would have heard the local news stories of mob-based murders because a lot were happening in the early 70s. Yeah. Mob killings were just a part of what was going on in Chicago at the time. Yeah, and so Patty, like, that's what I'm saying. It's an old chestnut, but it's a good one, Yeah. okay? Because Patty, <laughs> like, she knows, oh, wow, like, they're probably going to assume because of our last name and because of the news that there, there might be some traction there. But Patty forgets <laughs> that essential to a good argument is your delivery, yeah. okay? And Patty forgets that because her mind has been so twisted, by years of sexual perversion that she shows up at the police interview where she's going to offer this information about how her family is actually like deeply embedded in the mob right Mm -hmm. wearing lingerie and this is a big red flag you are supposed to be a grieving daughter and you show up ready for you know like your barbazon modeling school photo shoot you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. You know, I I know people don't know what Barbizon is. <laughs> <laughs> but if you don't know what Barbizon is, it was a online. No, it was an online. We didn't even have it internet magazines. Back then. Yeah. It was magazine. It was it was a modeling school. YouTube the videos, the ads for it. It it is one hundred percent worth it. Okay, but you don't you don't do that. Okay, you're supposed to show up as the you know grieving daughter. This reminds me of Mrs. Gecht because Mrs. Gecht shows up at the police station similarly because she wants to exonerate herself and her husband, Robin. But in doing so, she ends up shooting up a bunch of other red flags because she looks like the dragon lady there and she has all these cuts all over herself, right? So Patty is doing herself no fucking favors. And I think, Meredith, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like a part of patty's logic in showing up at a police station in her lingerie obviously during a time when there weren't many female officers i think she was banking on this idea that if she shows up in a room full of men wearing her lingerie that that's gonna read persuasive that's all the power she's ever had in the world yes yes yes, yes, sexual attention from men um her perceived sense of power, right? Because yes. it's not an actual power, right? Right. That's right. That's that's exactly right. 
So Patty thinks that by showing up in lingerie, she's closing the book on this subject. But really, she just bursts that shit wide open because police start to ask questions. And they start to ask questions specifically about her relationship with Frank, which leads to conversations with people that know the two. Those conversations prove to be disgusting because one of the things that they end up finding out is that Patty, because her mind has been so warped by her relationship with Frank, thinks that everything they've been doing is normal. You know, Meredith, you talked about this before that, you know, she basically felt like this overt sexualization on her part, it was really normalized for her. It just became a normal part of her life. Mm -hmm. And so for her, there's no shame. There's no issue in kind of showing these things or talking about it because everyone in her circle, which are all of Frank DeLuca's deranged swinging partners, right? In that world, this is normal. Everything is fine. So when police start talking to people that know them, including high school friends, high school friends say, oh, yeah, Patty, she's the one that showed us pictures of her having sex with a German shepherd. Meredith, can you please explain what the fuck they're talking about? So part of normal sexual behavior pre-internet was taking sexy photos. We talked a little bit about this with Larry Eiler. In Larry Eiler's case, they were like gay sexy photos, so it was a little bit taboo. But people kind of knew what the deal was, and they were like, oh, sure, I, like I understand what you're asking for. Fast forward to DeLuca and Patty are taking posed sexy photos, which is less taboo because it's a heterosexual relationship, but she's underage, and it's some pretty extreme stuff. When DeLuca says, okay, now pose naked with our pet dog, she's like, well, this is a little unusual, but certainly not as extreme as maybe some of the other things that she was doing with human beings. And I don't know what you read, but I I was reading some other sources and it claimed that they were just sexually explicit poses and not actually engaged with the animal but i don't know what what you read what did you read <laughs> no i i read something similar i mean okay. i mean again like we, we always have to you know point out there's a number of versions out there it, obviously not a video there right. was no video recording of this which is different than you know some other cases which we'll talk about a little bit later mm-hmm. In this case, these are just pictures. They do not show actual bestiality in a literal sense, right? Right. But they do hint of it. Yeah. Regardless of how you, you know, cut that orange, okay? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's still going to come out looking funky, right? Yeah. Because why the fuck are you taking sexually, what's the word I'm looking Explicit. for here? Explicit. Yeah, explicit or suggestive. Like, like, yeah. It, yeah. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where in the thesaurus you're looking, yeah, right? Yeah. It's still fucked up. And what I think is even more fucked up is that even though, yes, these pictures were taken, mm-hmm. that's crazy. But Patty really thought, again, this is where my sympathy lies in the earnestness demonstrated by her, mm-hmm. okay? She really thought that other people were going to look at that and be like, oh, wow, it, like, he really loves you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like that, that's fucking nuts. Yeah. Okay. So obviously now police are looking at this and they're like, okay, something is definitely not right. And it doesn't take too much scratching at the surface to realize that everything is rotten underneath. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. A mere 10 days after the murders, which that's, so that's fast. lightning. Oh my God. That's so fast. That's lightning speed. Especially in Chicago in the 70s. Yeah. Patty and Frank DeLuca are both arrested and charged with first degree murder of the Colombo family. Mm-hmm. Patricia ended her teenage years by celebrating her 20th birthday in custody. Because just as a reminder, this whole entire time, she's a teenager. She and DeLuca stood trial and the trial lasted for about a month. And in a really, really dumb move, they were tried together. Meredith, my head is is shaking. It's shaking so hard right now. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, they were found guilty together, okay? Mm -hmm. Which Patty is going to regret big time, okay? Totally. But Meredith, can we please just briefly talk about why you never want to be tried together, especially in a case like this? 
Oh my gosh, yeah. So if you're accused of something and are going to be put on trial, your defense attorney has the responsibility of providing you with a good defense. Mm-hmm. It's called a duty of loyalty, and you want that duty of loyalty to be to you and to nobody yep. else, okay? Yeah. So if, say, hypothetically, you and another person were accused of committing murder together, your attorney should care about your defense and not the defense of the other person, mm-hmm. even if the theory is that the two of you committed the murder together. This would be super important if... In this hypothetical situation, you were present during the murders, but the other person did the actual killing. Yeah. It's because the penalty is going to be different, right? So Mm -hmm. if your defense attorney can convince the jury that you didn't do the actual killing, you might get a more lenient punishment. Mm -hmm. But if you and the other accused person have the same defense attorney... That attorney cannot provide that defense to you. No. They can't say to a jury that defendant A pulled the trigger while defendant B was in the other room. That's just not on the table. Mm -hmm. And I think, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think that the only argument that the attorney can pursue is that neither defendant was present at the time of the murders. Yeah, because it's a joint defense. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. if we want to think back to the Leopold and Loeb case and their defense attorney, Clarence Darrow, if Darrow had only represented Leopold, he definitely would have been telling the jury that Loeb planned and carried out the murder basically single-handedly. Yeah. um, Free legal advice to everybody. Uh, Sever your shit, all right? The court system does not care about you. Uh, The court system does not care about poor people. It does not care about people who do not have access to legal services. It only cares about clearing their fucking docket, okay? So they are going to do anything that they can to make shit faster, okay? Mm -hmm. And courts love... Love trying defendants together, okay? Because oh, yeah. it means instead of having like three or four trials, you only have to have one. Yep. Conservation of fucking resources. And they're not going to tell you. They're not going to sit down 19-year-old Patty Colombo and be like, hey, this is actually a really dumb idea on your part, okay? We all know, too, Patty, even though she thought that her family had all this money, mm-hmm. Slayer rule. Okay, even if they had a fucking insurance policy for her, she can't get it. Right. Okay. Right. She can't access any of those resources, which actually at the end turned out to be a whole lot of nothing. So the only person with the resources to mount a defense here is Frank. Mm -hmm. And what Frank is not telling her is that he benefits from her being part of his trial. Because that means that she's not testifying against him. Yeah. Like this is this is so fucking sick and twisted. I personally don't think that something like this could happen now. At least at, at this level of egregiousness. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because I think that we know a lot more socially. Because at the end of the day, courts don't care about defendants. But courts do care about public opinion. Yes. You know? Mm-hmm. And I think as a public... We now know more and appreciate more the effects of sexual abuse on young women, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that there would be much more of an outcry. But at this point, mom's the fucking word, right? right? Because she gets tried right along with Frank. And it's also the reason why we don't have as many details about what actually happened happened Mm -hmm. okay because all that could get glossed over because they were being tried together you know that's unfortunate because we really don't have a clear answer as to why it was that so much hatred was shown to a 13 year old boy you know what i'm saying yeah and we're still left asking a lot of fucking questions even to this very fucking day yeah well do you want another piece of advice (laughs) I love advice. (laughs) (laughs) Don't model your romance on Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it turns out, this is going to be a shocker, turns out that being (laughs) accused of murder and going to trial puts a real strain on relationships. By the time Patty and DeLuca went to trial, they were long since broken up. And given that Patty was willing to kill to be with DeLuca, and now that the killings were done, 
you would be right to wonder, why break up now? (laughs) After all that, using all of it. So the answer might be related to what happened to the 13-year-old brother, Michael. And as you just said, it was there was so much hatred directed at that young boy. That poor kid. <sighs> yeah. Even when Patty was working with the phony hitman to plan the death of her parents, some sources say that she explicitly excluded her brother from the hit. And later, Patty would say that DeLuca committed each of the murders and went against her wishes to kill Michael when she wasn't in the room. If that's true... Then her story of being devastated by her brother's death and the end of her romance with DeLuca as a result makes sense. Okay. However, other sources claim that Patty was worried that her brother would figure out that she was behind the killings of her parents. If that version of the story is more truthful, then it would seem that the general stress of going through the trial ended the relationship. Yeah, Patty's always held out that she didn't actually kill her brother. Right. And we don't have any court records to really go off of. There has, you know, the whole point of going to court and having like a cross-examination is so that, you know, using that Hegelian dialectic mm-hmm. <laughs> of these two adversarial kind of issues, you know, basically birthing the truth of... We don't have that back and forth. We don't have that separation of the wheat from the chaff. So there was never a process by which Frank was ever meaningfully questioned about his participation. And it's really sad to think that Michael, as a 13-year-old boy, probably heard his parents getting killed. Yeah. Right? And then woke up to see his sister and this old man. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That he probably, you know, only met a handful of times, right? Because right. context clues here, right? Like, this is a married man who is screwing his his sister. He's probably heard kind of like whisperings by his parents, but this is also the late 70s, so yeah. he probably doesn't know exactly what's happening either. And then to be killed with that level of aggression, this to me screams like the act of a man whose masculinity is so fragile, okay, mm-hmm. that he sees the presence of Michael as another masculine force in Patty's life as being a threat, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. And this is something that we see a lot, you know, like we see this especially with stepfathers who are, you know, resentful or even like any any man who's dating a woman with a son. They view that masculine presence as being a threat to their ability to fully control. And I think there was enough of an age gap between Patty and Michael to create not, you know, a fraternal relationship, but almost a maternal relationship. And obviously we weren't there. And unfortunately, we don't have court records to really kind of delve into this. But if I were a betting man and I had, you know, like I'm just looking at my crystal ball I'm thinking Frank DeLuca kills the brother because he can't fathom to think of any other masculine relationship that Patty's going to have Mm -hmm. that involves feelings of love. Yeah. What do you think, Meredith? I think that holds water. If we believe what Patty would later say that she loved her brother and didn't want him to be killed, Mm -hmm. it is a threat to DeLuca because... That's the only thing that would take her away from DeLuca. Let's pretend we're in a a parallel universe where Patty's parents died of natural causes. Who's Michael going to go live with? You know, now that Patty was 19, it's conceivable that she would have to take on the care of Michael for the the next couple of years. And in so doing and in so taking on that responsibility, realize that DeLuca is truly just... um, a drain on her resources. This is all out of self-interest. You oh, know what yeah. I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so we can't forget that. Even though like the version that he wants everyone to believe is, I left my family for her. Right. I love her so much. Right. No, bullshit, 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 bullshit. Right? right? Like I think the point that you bring up is super important here because they are killing the parents with different goals. Yeah. Okay? Mm-hmm. Patty's killing her parents because she thinks she's going to get an economic windfall. Because in her mind, my parents 
their support and their security, the security they offered me is no longer on the table. What's a way for me to now be able to bypass them <laughs> in order to be able to obtain that that sense of security? Frank DeLuca is killing them so that he can sever all ties that Patty has to anything that might jeopardize her allegiance and subservience to him. Right. Because his wife just left him and he can't stand the idea that Patty would also leave. Yeah. And you know what? Frank must have been like just a sickly fucking accomplished and successful manipulator because as we'll get into later, his wife doesn't leave him. He stays in contact with her. So the amount of control he must have required of any female partner and like we said yeah there's no doubt in my mind that he hates women Mm -hmm. okay and so for him this is not about like realizing you know what patty wants right Mm -hmm. this is all about how he can shape her into the perfect character in his hero narrative right oh yeah and the thing that detracts from that is her having to take care of her baby little brother well, I mean, the thing that detracts from it is her, like, realizing that she has any agency in the world. And the oh, most likely yes. thing to give her agency is a sense of responsibility for that brother. Damn, Meredith! Yeah. <laughs> That's deep! Yes, 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 yes. Highlighted. Period. Love it, okay? Yeah. Because she has no other purpose in life. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. At this point in her relationship with Frank DeLuca than being his sex slave. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Whew. So, I don't even remember where we were. <laughs> I do. <laughs> okay. Ultimately, the jury convicted Patty Colombo and Frank DeLuca, and they were each sentenced to two to three hundred years in prison. Yeah, it was it was a pretty easy win for the state of Illinois. But there is a big reason why we keep talking about Patty in relationship to the 1980s. And that's because her story would not die. And we will talk about all the reasons why her story had a lot of legs and was able to live on into the next decade in the next episode. So, Meredith, uh, is there any other last words you want to give us about Patty Colombo? So, Jonathan, you and I have expressed sympathy for the child that Patty used to be. Um, Mm -hmm. But as she came into adulthood, she fully inhabited the mind and actions of a murderer and is in prison to this day. And and I think um, we both agree that's where she belongs. Yeah, I feel like I have sympathy with her until the actual murder. Yeah. Um, The fact that we have to remember three days went before they found the bodies, another 10 days until she ends up getting charged. She could have very easily, within that time period, ratted out Frank. Or even just implicated herself just out of her own guilt. But she never did. Right. So, you know, like you said, yes, we feel bad that she was an angsty teenager who wasn't back in the day. But it doesn't excuse her actions. And next week, we are going to delve into what happened to Patty and Frank afterwards. And why that would also leave a lot of questions in the Chicagoland area. So thanks for listening and listen next week. Thank you. Murderland Chicago, A Deep Dish of Death, was created and produced by us, Jonathan Sanchez-Lives and Meredith Halsey. Our theme music is The Original Chicago Blues, which was composed by James White in 1915 and performed by Katerina Storchius in 2021. Artwork is by Laura Gosdell. Special thanks to everyone who helped make this season possible, including the friends and family who listened, gave constructive feedback, and offered advice and pointers on recording and editing. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more from us, subscribe to Murderland Chicago, a deep dish of death on your podcast app. Follow us on Patreon at Murderland Chicago. And find us on Instagram at Deep Dish of Death. 
Throughout the making of this podcast, we did quite a bit of research to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, but we know that sometimes information sources contain errors, and we accept that, in conversation, we may have introduced errors to the stories. To that point, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please send any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors to us at deepdishofdeath at gmail.com.